Well, hello and welcome to the Smells Like Money podcast. Join me, Suzanne Chin-Taylor, the doo-doo diva, as I interview guests who are making an impact on how we manage and operate systems for conveying and treating wastewater. As a veteran of the wastewater, trenchless, and civil infrastructure industry, each week, I'll be bringing you industry know-how from industry pros who know how. Join me each week as I speak with representatives of organizations that are utilizing disruptive or new technologies and methods, and executives who are excited to share how to be successful and sustainable in our vital industry. So whether you want to learn about the latest trends in technology, in treatment or trenchless, gain tips on training and retaining great talent, or simply how to be more efficient, productive, or profitable, this podcast is for you. Ready? Let's dive right in. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Doo Doo Divas Smells Like Money podcast. We have the great pleasure of visiting with an old friend and colleague of mine, Jeremy Huckabee, who is currently a business development specialist for Engineered Spray Solutions, a specialty trenchless contractor serving the states of Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee. So thank you for coming on to the show, Jeremy, and um, offering your words of wisdom to us today. Suzanne, thanks for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to uh, continue this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, today we're going to talk about some things that are you know, near and dear to my heart, as well as Jeremy's, in that when we're looking at projects, capital equipment projects and making those educated decisions. Jeremy had alluded, and I, and I think this is a really wise thing that we want to talk about, is that cities and even private asset owners really need to take a strong look at total life cycle costs and why that matters and not just, oh, I can get this done. This is a lot less expensive than this but what is it going to cost me if I have to keep coming in and do the same thing every 10 years? What's really going to, what's going to be the total cost over 50 years that you hope that this is going to be in the ground. And so Jeremy, um, I'd like you to touch on that a little bit about why life cycle cost really needs to be factored in when they are making a decision on what technology to use and then eventually material and contractor to use. No, it's a great question. And I, I think the environment we're in currently really speaks to the need to look at life cycle cost. And, you know, what I mean by the current environment is just the, the inflationary pressures that are everywhere. So what you do today in terms of solution, what you select, you know, it could cost you uh, significantly more tomorrow. So you want to get something in place that's not just a, a Band-Aid, if you will, uh, for lack of a better term. You want something that's going to give you a solution for the long run. And that way, it allows you to free up those monies that you continue to invest in that particular technology. You know, take that out of the equation and put it to something that may be a better use or something in a different part of your system that you need to address as well. You know, if you if you just focus on what the lowest cost is at the moment and don't factor in the total life cycle, then you really you really short yourself on being able to, um, you know, invest broadly 
in your assets, your infrastructure assets. I mean, it's one thing to talk about underground infrastructure, but there's also above ground things you have to keep into consideration, um, even in, in the water industry. Uh, you know, we we think a lot about water and wastewater and it being underground, but there's above ground structures too. So you've really got to be able to invest broadly and not just keep going back to the same place um, just because you feel like, hey, it's really inexpensive in the moment. And so I, I think that's really key. And I think people are starting to see that more now that we're in this cycle of inflation and things are costing more and the people are realizing that, hey, I've got to get more bang for my buck. I've got to be able to get um, a solution in place that's going to last for an extended period of time. You had mentioned when we spoke earlier about some ideas that you had for how to get more done for the budget available and to consider those projects that you might be able to do in tandem with above ground, which you just alluded to. So can you maybe give me a few more details on what exactly you meant by that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when you evaluate technologies, I mean, you, you want to partner with somebody who's got a proven track record, who's got that third party testing and has demonstrated uh, real world solutions, not just that lab testing. And, you know, I, I think, you know, what you can do is, is 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 use those those sources of information to be able to to make a wise decision. And at the same time, you know, you can save money in the long run by getting something that's going to last and then taking that and those savings and applying it to something maybe that's tied into that asset that you just rehabilitated. Um, you know, that, that could be, you know, for, for our discussion here, that could be something, you know, if you're addressing all the manholes in your system, for example, and you're able to rehabilitate those with the technology that's going to give you, you know, a 20 plus year service life, you know, just for, for argument's sake, then you can take that savings and apply it to the list stations in your system, you know, as well. So you're, you know, that's kind of what I'm talking about when, you know, that broad investment piece is it's not just about one asset. It's about a, a different classes of assets in your system. And that's just kind of a simple example for our discussion here. But you could apply that, um, you know, in, in greater detail across the board. I was even thinking when you were saying about above ground, um, I remember speaking to a city years ago that they knew they had to do some upsizing of, they were going to do some pipe bursting and part of the road, it, it, it couldn't be helped that they were actually going to have to do some dig and replace of some things or, you know, upscale it, that why not do it in conjunction with the fact that they decided they were going to need to repave the road and they were going to widen it. So do it at the same time as you're disrupting your community and only upset your people once. If you're going to have to tear up the street to try to make best use of the, the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's the other thing, too, is that, you know, you, you figure out, um, you know, how you can take those savings, like I mentioned earlier, by using a long term solution and then putting it all together. Just thinking big picture uh, in which, you know, a lot of the a lot of the communities that I've talked to, I mean, they're really starting to be more proactive and saying, okay, here's our five-year plan, our 10-year plan, our 20-year plan, not just looking at the condition of the assets, but also thinking about population growth uh, because you're seeing Capacity. in some areas, yeah, you're seeing a lot of shift in population, a lot of people moving in, a lot of growth. And so communities are having to take that into account and they're having to figure out what they need to do now because, you know, 
a year, two years from now, they could be looking at something that astronomically more expensive than what it is today. Um, so again, I think that's a great example, like you mentioned, being able to do things at one time uh, versus, you know, like you said, upsetting your constituents multiple times. Right, right. So when we, we spoke a bit about when we were talking about new technologies and that sometimes it's a very, very hard sell into this market and the importance it is if you're a contractor or even if you're a technology provider, that importance to be first to understand what your client's needs are so that you become a resource, even if you're never able to get a job from them, but to at least be someone that they can call upon and know that they can trust your wise counsel. So give me an example of how that's worked for you, because you write a lot about that on LinkedIn. And for those of you who are listening, if you're not connected with Jeremy, I, I seriously recommend that you connect with him on LinkedIn. He publishes some of the most wonderful leadership, business development, just interesting thought-provoking content that is just chock-filled with things that really can be applied across any industry, but especially in the different facets of our industry. And so I'd like you to address that of what you meant about being a resource and listening and understanding first. Sure. Uh, thank you for the kind words, by the way. I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, that that's kind of my my approach just in general is trying to be a resource for people across different industries. But yeah, I mean, I, I think Stephen Covey had it best. I mean, it's one of the sayings, if you've ever read, you know, his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right. one of the things he talks about is seeking to understand first, then be understood. And I, I think that applies. I mean, whether you're talking about business development or contractors working with, you know, end users, um, you want to understand where your customer is, where your, you know, your client is in their journey uh, as it relates to kind of what you have to offer or the general you know, type of work you do and really see what their day-to-day -day looks like first before you propose a solution because it's not always going to be a fit and that's okay. And I think that's something I've learned over the years. I mean, it used to be for me, hey, it's all about making the sale. It's all about getting the contract. It's all about, you know, winning that business. But to me, like you mentioned earlier, even if you don't get business from somebody, I think it's a much better um, result just to be that resource for them that you genuinely care about what happens to them. And, you know, instead of just saying, hey, I, I sold you something or, hey, I got this business. If you don't help them in the long run, then then really, what have you gained? Um, you know, it's much easier to get a repeat customer than it is to try to go out and get new business. So you really got to understand what's going on with them first. And at the same time, before you do understand what it is, the value that you bring uh, to the table. And that way, when they do share that with you, you can kind of really know, hey, should we continue this conversation or is there somebody else I need to pull in? And to me, that's the value also in not just understanding your clients you're talking to, understand what's going on within your given industry, because there may be partnerships that, you know, you could establish with companies um, and maybe not formal partnerships, but informal and just being able to help each other out. They may be a solution to um, a client of yours in a given situation. And, you know, it may vice versa. You may be a solution for one of their clients in a situation down the road. So, 
you just never know what's going on in a person's world, whether that's personally or professionally. So it's important to, you know, understand them first before you come out of the gate swinging and saying, hey, I've got the answer to your problem. Yeah, well, well put, well put. It's, you know, a, a lot of us, you know, we get inundated with these messages on LinkedIn where somebody makes a connection and then within 15 seconds, the next message is they're trying to sell you something or get, get an appointment. You know, it's a sales call. Exactly. And I think it's, you're right. It's, it's so important, especially in a virtual selling environment that we are in today. We have to build that trust factor. How do I know that what I have is the answer to your problem until I sit down and have a conversation with you? You know, you, you, you nailed it perfectly. I, I love that about you may not be the right fit. So tap those resources. It's all about the networking. Uh, you alluded to there's no such thing as a magic silver bullet. You know, nobody can be not one technology or one service provider can be that magic silver bullet. And to help your clients, I think, explore all their options, whether it's with you or with someone that you know and trust. I think that I think that's really important. And one of the things that I hear, because, you know, the technologies that you're using or your company is, you know, putting into the marketplace, to some, they may can be considered a little bit new, although they've been around for a while in some form or another, but people are very reluctant to try something new. And we had a conversation about this on a uh, sewer infrastructure roundtable last week, is that what's your take on that? Why do you think we as people in this industry that are marketing something new, have such a hard time getting the industry as a whole to be willing to adopt new methodologies or new ways of looking at something. I, I think it's interesting. And I think it goes beyond this industry. I think there's a little bit of human nature involved too. And the fact that mm, we as humans yeah. like, um, you know, we like our routines. Uh, we we kind mm. of fear the unknown a little bit to a certain extent and maybe that plays to a greater degree in, in the water wastewater industry. And it could be that there's a lot of conservative uh, approaches because, you know, if you make a mistake, you know, if you, you know, it could be catastrophic, catastrophic, right. um, you know, in certain instances, again, I, I just go back to the fact that I, I think um, you just got to get out there and learn. I think, you know, as a contractor, as an end user, as an engineer, whatever the case may be, that's the point of going to these trade shows. And it's the great thing. You mentioned silver bullets. I mean, there's so many great technologies and I, I really mean that. I mean, there's a lot of great people. There's a lot of great technologies and that's the beauty of it. You have options at your disposal and that's great. But again, you've got to take the time to learn. Um, you know, if you're trying to find a contractor or trying to find a solution, or if you're on the opposite side of the table as a contractor, you've got to try to read and study and, and look at what the issues are that are going on within the industry, uh, particularly as it relates to what your core focus is. But yeah, I, I think human nature plays into it to some degree. Uh, but again, knowledge is power. So if you get out there and you learn and you try to take in that information and be intentional about going to these shows uh, and really trying to find at least one or two new things to learn about, that'll dispel some of that fear and it'll really open you up to, to finding some new ways to maybe solving some problems that are recurring within your system or within your, your, your job um, that, that you face on a regular basis. So 
that's kind of my take on it. Uh, I know there's there's a lot of different viewpoints, but that's kind of the way I see it. Thank you for that. I, I really like that because it, in some cases, you had mentioned to me, you know, the people shouldn't be afraid of new technologies. It's important to do your due diligence, like you said, but that you have had experience in seeing those who are willing to try something new. Yes, it's a little scary. Um, test it on a small scale. And then if it works, it's, wow, now I've got something where I can really capitalize and have a big payoff because I was willing to say, all right, just because that's the way it's always been done doesn't mean that's the way I always have to continue doing it. And, and yeah, I would agree with you there. It, it can be catastrophic. It is that human nature. We like our routines. You know, we like that thing that we know. Nobody wants to be that first person to, to, to take that risk. I, I would agree. And so that kind of, you know, rounds out, you know, what we were talking about in due diligence. And it kind of circles back to those, again, some of those points of life cycle costs. And what are some of the important things when an asset owner is performing their due diligence that needs to be part of that whole CIP program design. You mentioned, you alluded to a little bit about third-party testing, case studies. Uh, I'd like you to elaborate on that because there's a lot of, oh, it's been tested, but not all testing is equal. And you come from a background that did, from, from a company that spent a tremendous amount, invested a lot in independent testing. And so I'd like you to just kind of touch on the importance of that and the value of that, not just to the manufacturer for quality control, but to the end user and what that means for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's part of it too. I mean, I, you know, you, you can't be, um, you can't be complacent about trying to implement new technologies like we just talked about. I mean, yeah, I'm not here to say that, yeah, just go out and try it. Don't be scared. You do have to do your due diligence. So, you know, don't misunderstand me on that front right. because I do think you have to take a measure of care, first of all, and you have to ask the questions and, and think about it on a scenario type level. Like if we do this, then what's going to happen because of it? Um, so yeah, third-party testing is crucial. And like you said, yeah, there's not all testing is equal. Just because somebody says they've done testing um, doesn't mean that it's quality testing. You know, what kind of lab do they use? You know, is the lab certified? Does it use, you know, the, the standard ASTM tests that are industry accepted? You know, what's the track record beyond the testing? Because let's face it, a lot of this testing is done inside of a lab with controlled conditions, controlled mm -hmm. environments. What happens when you get it out in the real world? You know, has this technology that you're evaluating been used in a similar scenario to what you're facing? You know, if not, well, that may be time to take a step back and ask some additional questions. It doesn't mean you rule it out. It just means you've got to be a little bit more careful about you know, whether you move forward with that particular option or not, um, you know, what's the extent of the testing? Is it just a simple lab test? Has there been extensive study done by it? Again, is it third party affiliated? You know, a lot of manufacturers do in-house testing too. Yes, there's, there's some value to that, but again, the third party, non-affiliated, completely independent lab, those tests really, to me, carry more weight. And again, case studies are invaluable. So I think those two are, are really, really important. Um, 
you know, what's the longevity? We talk about life cycle cost. You know, does the manufacturer, uh, you know, have they done any kind of study on that? Can they provide you data to show, hey, this is what a or this is what an entity did, you know, or spent roughly to rehab this structure, for example. And, you know, here's how long it lasted and here's what it would have been to rehab this structure, you know, three or four times over that period. So, yeah, I think you've really got to look at both of those factors. You know, the real world is is really powerful when it comes to, you know, testimonials, when it comes to evaluating a technology. Yes, lab testing matters, but again, there's only so much you can you can derive from that. You know, we're in the business of solving real world problems with with a company that I work for. And so that's that's it. At the end of the day, we're not going to come to somebody and say, hey, this is the plan. This is what we would recommend unless we know it's really going to work. I mean, you've got to be practical at the end of the day. Uh, lab, lab testing only gets you so far. So, yeah, that to me is the key. The two key things when you're talking about due diligence, um, you know, that's important to consider. You know, beyond that, you know, what kind of uh, representation does a manufacturer have when it comes to the implementation or application of the technology? Do they have reputable contractors? You know, what's their in-house, like you mentioned, QAQC method? Because, you know, when you when you manufacture something, you've got to have that process in place uh, to where it's not just good one time, it's good every time. And so those are two other things beyond the first two that I, I think you got to keep in mind. But yeah, absolutely. Do your homework. Don't take what somebody says as gospel. Go out there and look into it for yourself. Uh, you know, ask other people that have used the technology what their uh, experience has been like, you know, beyond the initial installation. Because let's face it, everything looks great on day one. I mean, it looks the best thing since sliced bread the first day. But what happens 365 days later? What happens four or five years down the road? Those are the questions that you can ask somebody that's that's actually put the technology into their particular asset. Well, that leads, you know, it's a perfect segue. It's now spurning another question that part, you can have the greatest technology in the world, but if you don't have a qualified applicator or installer, then everything is going to go to, you know, where in a handbasket very quickly. What's that old saying? There's no such thing as a perfect project, except the one that hasn't started yet. And so <laughs> I, I'd like you to maybe let's let's continue this, and this will be our last question because we're we're getting tight on time. But due diligence, things you should be asking yourself when you're looking for an installer or a contractor. What are the key points? You know, we always talk about product technology. Now let's talk about the people, the human side of it. What should you be looking for? And again, we talked about earlier the the life cycle cost. Hiring a contractor, choosing the contractor just because he was the cheapest price may not be the best choice or the best, you know, course of action. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's it's a really important topic. I mean, there's no perfect contractor. I mean, we're talking about people. So mistakes are going to happen. You know, the, the thing I, I, I like to ask is, you know, it's not if there's going to be a problem, it's when there's a problem, what's the response going to be? That's the question that you have to ask. Is the contractor going to take ownership of the situation or or are they going to take the path that many do and point fingers? That that's that's the one of the first things you've got to, you know, 
ascertain is what's the character of the contractor. I mean, I, you know, I don't, you know, mean that in a flippant way. I'm just saying, right. Hey, you know, problems occur. Problems occur every single day, not just in this industry, but any industry. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what are you going to do to fix it? And, you know, you can figure the rest out at a later date, but a lot of times in this industry, when we have a problem, it's got to be solved immediately. I mean, there's, there's huge ramifications if it's not. So that's number one. Number two, you know, what does the contractor do to invest in their people? Because at the end of the day, it's not just about who owns the contracting business. It's about the people they have working in the field. What do they do to invest in them to make them better? Uh, What do they do to invest in their equipment to make sure their equipment's in top condition? Um, You know, how do they represent themselves? You know, how do they how do they do? you know, when it comes to understanding their technology and what they do, do their crews know that? Are their crews competent? Are they professional? Um, can they work with your constituents? Because let's face it, a lot of the infrastructure work takes place in the public domain and, and in areas where people live and work every single day. So you want a contractor that can interface uh, with those constituents in your community to make sure things go smoothly. Um so, yeah, those are definitely things to consider. You know, what's their track record of safety? I didn't mention that first, but that probably should be the first thing we talk about is safety. And that's all, that's that's my mistake for not bringing that up first. We we can do all kinds of projects at the end of the day, but if we can't do them safely, um, then, then really it's a lost cause because people are our most important asset. And I know that's cliche, but that's that's really what it's about. So what's their track record on safety? That's a big thing to consider first and foremost. But again, what are they going to do when it, when it gets to a problem? Because you know there's going to be something that occurs. There's no perfect contractor. So I think that's critical, too, because you got to get the problem solved. You can figure out all the other details later, but it, the problem's got to be fixed first. And that's, that's the kind of contractor you want to be dealing with that takes ownership of it, gets it done, and then you figure out um, all the other you know, aspects um, you know, after the fact. Great answer and a great wrap up. Well, Jeremy, thank you again for coming on the podcast and for the listeners. I really recommend connect with Jeremy on LinkedIn. It's Jeremy Huckabee. You can search him and find him out. His company is Engineered Spray Solutions. Uh, In a not too distant future, they're going to be launching a new website that is ESS Infratech com and connect with them open dialogue and again in this industry it's all about the networking and maintaining those relationships jeremy how long how long have you and i known each other oh back oh six seven years now at, at least at least and you've changed jobs um along the way since we first met but we've still maintained contact because you never know ever never 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 know when you might need that valued, knowledgeable resource. And lucky me, I got to tap this fountain of knowledge and bring him here on the show for you today. So again, thank you for joining us on this week's episode. And until next time, keep it flowing. Thanks so much for joining me, the Doo Diva, on this week's episode of Smells Like Money. What stood out to you this week? Share your takeaways by leaving me a review. You can find out more about the new technologies, creating sustainable solutions and insights on how to succeed in our vital industry by subscribing to the show. 
Whether you want to learn about the latest trends in wastewater infrastructure, treatment, or trench lists, you've got it all right here at Smells Like Money. If you're an industry expert and would like to be considered as a guest for the show, book a quick chat with me by visiting calendly.com forward slash the Tuit group forward slash B dash A dash podcast dash guest, or simply click the link in the show notes below. Until next week, a big shout out to all my industry friends and those who will be. You are my superheroes. Thanks for tuning in, keeping it flowing, and we'll see you all next week.